Welcome to episode 164 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. This episode is a bonus cross post of my conversation about sentientism with Josh Milburn on his Knowing Animals podcast as part of their Protecting Animals series of conversations with activists. Make sure you subscribe to Knowing Animals wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, Josh has been my guest back in Sentientism episode 50, great conversation from the back catalogue. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. As always, feedback and suggestions are always welcome. I also wanted to extend a quick warm welcome to everyone who's recently joined one of our online sentientism communities. More people join us in those every day, whether they think of themselves as sentientists or not. The groups are open to everyone. Just search for the word sentientism on your favourite platforms and you'll find us there. Our biggest is on Facebook. We've also just hit 2,000 YouTube subscribers for those who prefer to watch our conversations. It's great to have so much support there too. Thank you. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. It's both kind and rational To like knowing animals Can't deny it's fashionable To like knowing animals Hello everyone, and welcome to Knowing Animals. Knowing Animals is a podcast in which we speak to animal studies scholars about a piece of their work. My name's Josh Milburn, and I do like knowing animals. Now today's episode of Knowing Animals is part of our intermittent Protecting Animals series, in which we talk to animal advocates, past and present, about the work they do for animals. The episode is brought to you by ASA, the Australasian Animal Studies Association. ASA is one of the most significant scholarly organisations devoted to animal studies. I've just renewed my membership and I encourage all of you to join today. Membership is very reasonably priced. The episode is also brought to you by the Animal Public's book series from Sydney University Press. This is a collection of books about animal studies. I was pleasantly surprised recently to find out that some of their books are award-winning. Taya Brooks Prebach's Into the Animal Cross-Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality won a silver medal in the Animals and Nature category of the Nautilus Book Awards earlier this year. Now, on this episode, I'm joined by Jamie Woodhouse. I've known Jamie for a few years now, and many of you may know him as the man behind the website sentientism.info, the Sentientism podcast, various sentientism social media groups, and a range of other outreach activities related to the philosophy of sentientism. Now, I thought Jamie might be a really interesting person to talk to on Knowing Animals, precisely because his activism takes place in conversation with Animal Studies Scholarship. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. It's an honour to be here. Thanks, Josh. I've been an avid listener for a long while and I've learned so much from your guests. So. Oh, that's great to hear. Can you start by telling us what inspired you to get involved with animal activism? Yeah, it was a long road and one that I guess started out with a pretty default, ordinary English way of thinking about ethics and the world around us because I grew up in a sort of Christian context. But then I followed a path from there through to atheism, through to a humanist way of thinking about ethics that layered onto that sort of naturalistic way of understanding of the world. But I guess the final part of the journey is a critical one, partly triggered by my sister's vegetarianism, whereas I started to look at 
humanism, secularism, and some of those naturalistic worldviews, and just saw there was a deep problem there, that of anthropocentrism. So that was the sort of journey that led me to think about this idea of sentientism. So that's that's the journey, but it's been taken way too long, decades rather than years. And I guess where it's ended up is this sense that, you know, the ideas around animal advocacy and veganism just aren't contentious enough. So let's throw in religion, supernaturalism and naturalism into the mix as well, just to make it extra entertaining. (laughs) Yes, good. And I definitely want to ask you a bit about humanism, because that's been one of the areas, well, one of the areas where you've been pushing this idea of sentientism. But let's start with the basics. Could you introduce us to the philosophy of sentientism as you understand it? So I'd describe it as a worldview or, as you say, a philosophy that is really trying to answer the two biggest and most important philosophical questions. And while I say they're philosophical, they're also just everyday questions that anybody can consider. And I think those are, you know, what's real? What should we believe? And how should we go about choosing what to believe? So epistemology, if you like. And it's also answering the question of who and what matters, I guess, the foundational question of ethics, who's in our ethical scope. So in a single line, I'm suggesting sentientism should commit to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. So the evidence and reason tells us how we should try and understand the world and our epistemology, really a naturalistic way of understanding things. And on the question of moral scope, again, the clue's in the name, that we should use sentience, the capacity to have experiences, particularly valenced experiences of suffering and flourishing, as our uh, the only real criteria for deciding who and what gets moral consideration. I think it's fair to say that these ideas will be familiar to lots of people in animal studies. So would I be right in saying that this is an idea that you're aiming to popularise and spread rather than an idea that you've come up with? The word sentientism was originally coined by people who were criticising animal ethics scholars. So there were people like, um, I think, John Rodman and others coming from an ecocentrist or a biocentrist view, and they were criticising people like Peter Singer and the Oxford Group and Richard Ryder and others around them and saying, look, this idea you have of focusing on sentience as a moral qualifier is in a way discriminating against all the non-sentient stuff, you know, the biosphere and the ecosphere. So I think that was the first time the word was used. And there it was used by those people specifically to criticise the moral scope part of the argument. As Richard Ryder and others around them and Peter Singer picked up the term and, and, and used it, I think both of those authors, at least implicitly, did have it as uh, a naturalistic way of grounding our ethics. So rather than looking at maybe supernatural or religious ideas of a soul or dominion or you know, other concepts that might come from the supernatural realm, it was very much a scientific way of thinking that you could examine the world, assess sentience as a naturalistic phenomenon, and then move forward. I think the word has often in the academic world become somewhat synonymous with sentiocentrism. So as you, as you might think about this question of moral scope, you know, there's loads of ways of thinking about it, but one is this sort of sliding scale from anthropocentrism to sentiocentrism to biocentrism to ecocentrism as, you know, how broad should our scope of moral concern go? So some people do use sentientism as equivalent to sentiocentrism and sometimes they get mixed together and I guess one of the things I'm suggesting is that we could clarify a distinction between the two that we could have sentiocentrism as starts about our moral scope being based on sentience that says nothing about epistemology whatsoever whereas sentientism could be the explicitly naturalistic version of that in a similar way as you might see 
secular humanism as an explicitly naturalistic version of an anthropocentric way of thinking. So in a way, there's, I guess there's a, you know, a slight recasting of the term there, but it's not really radically shifting it. The other thing I've tried to do in talking about the idea of sentientism is to suggest that we should commit to this naturalistic way of thinking, not just when we're thinking about ethical scope, but we should commit to naturalism in general as you know, a sensible epistemology and a sensible way of thinking about the world. So that in almost any domain of human knowledge, that naturalistic way of thinking, you know, with humility based on evidence and reason is a solid, strong stance that we should take. So those are the only two tunings I've done, really. One is, you know, that emphasis on naturalism and and then extending that naturalistic commitment to the entire sphere of human thinking, not just to our ethics. Yes, I see. So that then points towards some areas of animal studies that perhaps wouldn't be sentientist in the way that you describe it. For example, so-called animal theology or the Christian vegetarian tradition. You might yeah. say they're sentiocentric or they could be sentiocentric, but they're not going to be sentientist in your sense because there's a different kind of epistemology going on. That would be my suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a useful distinction to make. And the, the one thing I would say is that while sentientism is you know, an explicitly naturalistic commitment, as you've hinted at there, we have absolutely common cause with all sorts of different schools of thought, supernatural and religious, who are also trying to push towards a sentiocentric way of thinking. So you know, that's absolutely a common cause. But I think it's useful to make a distinction about an explicitly naturalistic way of thinking about the world combined with a sentiocentric ethical stance. Yeah. But it does sound like, and if you'll forgive a word with slightly religious overtones, it does sound like sentientism is quite an ecumenical philosophy. So people with lots of different understandings of ethics, politics, epistemology, as long as they sign on to the core elements of it, could be sentientists. Yeah, and and, and this is one thing I'm really keen to try to attempt. It, you know, proper philosophers, real philosophers like you go deep, right? So you, you have a start and you think things through and you work things through into, in, into deep, coherent, complete views often. And in a sense, I'm deliberately copying out of that and sort of backing away from many of those really important discussions and debates and suggesting that the most important thing is to maybe set a sort of even potentially universal baseline, both around epistemology and ethics. So on the epistemological start, sentientism doesn't tell you what to believe. It just says you should use evidence and reason to ground those credences but there's still plenty to fight over about you know conflicting evidence and how we do reasoning and it doesn't mean people with a naturalistic worldview are always going to agree and on the ethical side again it's really just a very simple start about moral scope so it it says all you know compassion for all sentient beings every sentient being should warrant serious moral consideration but it's irritatingly neutral beyond that so as you hinted at you know you could be uh, someone who's committed to virtue ethics or a deontological stance or a feminist care ethic or utilitarianism or a different flavor of consequentialism or a relational ethic, you know, whatever you like, or a pluralistic combination of those. But I would suggest as long as your moral scope, when you're thinking that system through, grants serious moral consideration to every sentient being, that's still a sentientist stance. So th- the reasons for focusing on that platform are one, because I think those are the most important questions to get the right answer to. And I think often I find a frustration that much academic and public intellectual thinking bakes in an anthropocentric assumption and never goes back to challenge it. So it's always working on really fascinating, detailed questions about moral trade-offs and different systems and different thought experiments, but they rarely go back to those foundations. So I want to really focus on the foundations because I think they're the most important thing. They have the deepest negative and positive impact in the world. 
and two because I think it it's it's useful to have in these sort of polarizing times a shared platform that a broad variety of people with very different ways of thinking might come to agree on to say, at least we're going to commit to using evidence and reason in thinking about the world. And at least every sentient being warrants moral consideration. Now let's carry on fighting, but maybe we can agree on a you know, really simple basic platform that both hopefully is philosophically sound, but can also be summarized in a sentence you can explain to someone on the street. Yes, I see the value of that. So let me ask you a question about your activism or your advocacy then. What kinds of things are you doing in order to introduce people to the idea of sentientism and to perhaps encourage them to sign on to the idea of sentientism? So it's amateurish and broad, but I guess the the three things I'm trying to do are one, just create content about the idea. So that includes the YouTube channel and the podcast and some writing I've had published that tries to explain the the worldview and the stance, lay out some of its implications, for example, by having a go at a universal declaration of sentient rights or reworking the sustainable development goals, the sentientist development goals. So it's content development. There's also outreach, and you've hinted at that already. I've, many of my guests you know, overlap with yours. So I've been engaging with people who work in the animal ethics space, but also philosophers from outside of that, also public intellectuals, celebrities, sci-fi authors, people who work on the nature of consciousness and sentience, people who work on animal behavior, different spheres to, one, engage them in conversations, which I'm recording and sharing, but also just to sh- sort of suggest and share this platform. But then beyond that, there's, this, there's community creation, so that's, again, with the website, with the social media groups. They're all open to people who both agree and disagree with these ways of thinking. But I'm interested in bringing together groups of people from around the world to discuss these ideas, refine them, think about the implications and you know, potentially try and popularize them too. So those are the three things I'd say. There's content, there's a sort of, if you like, more academic influence, that outreach and then community building. As you suggested earlier... I think it's really interesting that one of your key, if you like, target demographics has been humanists. And to clarify, I mean advocates or followers of secular humanism rather than, you know, scholars in the humanities, which is what we sometimes mean when we say humanists. So can I ask why you focused on reaching out to humanists in particular among many other groups who you could be reaching out to? Yeah, it's been fascinating because there are there's a, a range of different groups of people, I guess, or different types of people that come to engage with sentientism. So some just come to it direct. They're intrigued about this philosophy and this worldview and it resonates or it doesn't. There are people who are already active in the animal advocacy or the animal ethics world and like the idea of complementing a clear sentiocentric stance with something that is naturalistically grounded. And sometimes that comes from some frustrations they may have felt in the animal advocacy worlds where the epistemology maybe gets broken or leads people down some difficult pathway. So that can be reassuring and helpful for people already involved in vegan and animal advocacy. There are some other niches too. So I've had some fascinating conversations with people who are interested in uh, artificial intelligence ethics and the field of robot rights. And again, it's been a great chance for me to engage with them and um, think about the potential for even non-organic artificial sentience and what that might mean and that's an interesting topic in its own right but it also gives me the chance to engage with some of these very influential people and bang them over the head with the obvious more immediate imperative of animal ethics too but i should answer your question because the humanists are, are fascinating so humanism has a long and 
varied history and lots of different flavours. And there are criticisms of it and fans of it too. But in its modern incarnation, it's quite an explicitly secular naturalistic stance. So in a way, it's a commitment to a naturalistic way of understanding the world. It's it's non-supernatural. It's non-religious. It's grounded in you know, the ideas of science and using evidence and reason to understand the world. So it shares that naturalistic commitment with, with centrism. But of course, the clue is in the name. Humanism implies an anthropocentrism. And indeed, that is an accurate depiction of the mainstream humanist movement around the world. So it's been fascinating to engage with humanists because I do see them as an important target market, if you like, for animal ethics and, and animal advocacy, because they're almost there. You know, they, they already have a naturalistic grounding. They don't feel the need for a supernatural grounding for their ethics. Uh, and they've already committed to a universal compassion for at least all human beings. And when you engage with them and you say, well, why is it we care about those humans? Most of them will acknowledge it's because of the human capacity to suffer and flourish and their sentience. So you're immediately into a very easy, open conversation. So with some humanists, it's been a, a really positive engagement. They just seize on it and, and will say, you know, some of them say, well, this is what humanism should become. Some of them would quite will be quite happy changing the name of the humanist organisations even to sentientist organisations. So I had a fascinating conversation with the legendary activist Peter Tatchell on the podcast and YouTube, and he said, you know, essentially that, you know, humanism should become sentientism. It's just obvious and it's where we should go. It's the next frontier of social justice and ethical thinking. So some people will seize on it. That's also backed up by this anecdotal sense I have, and I'd love to see more research on it, that humanists and people with a secular or naturalistic worldview seem on average to be more personally engaged with animal issues than the average general population. So slightly cheekily in a presentation given by Dr. Diana Fleischmann to a Humanist UK conference with 1,100 humanists in the audience, instead of asking Diana a question, I asked the audience a question, you know, how many of you are ethical vegans or vegetarians? And 35, 40% of the audience put their hand up. So it's you know, self-reported. But that's an enormous step forward given the average demographic start. So I, that gives me real hope about engaging with humanists and humanist organisations to help them on this journey. And you can see the shifts happening institutionally too. So Humanist UK and Humanist International have already updated their definitions of what humanism is to include at least a tokenistic mention of some concern for non-human sentient animals. The American Humanist Association isn't there yet, but we're in conversation with them. And I've done a number of you know, presentations and Q&A sessions and discussions, and the engagement has been positive. At the same time, there's a hesitation within the humanist movement because they're nervous about losing the sort of intellectual history and the momentum and the brand they have built up around the word humanism. So they theoretically agree with sentientism, but are worried about the shift of brand. But then, as you might expect, there are also those who push back extremely hard with a clear, direct, anthropocentric challenge that says, no, humanism, the clue is in the name, it's about humans, that's where it should stop. So it's been fascinating. And overall, I think I have a you know, very optimistic cast of mind in thinking about engaging with humanists about and non-human animal ethics. I mean, that's fascinating. There's so many interesting things in what you just said. So the first thing to say is it definitely sounds like you're doing valuable, impactful work with these humanist organisations. It does sound like they might be a fertile ground. But a second thing that jumped out of me was what you said about how some people felt dissatisfaction 
with the animal movement and the kind of epistemologies that, that were mainstream there. So I've seen lots of examples of this, but something I come back to again and again, and I may have even talked to you about this before, but I remember one time I was speaking at a vegan fair about my work and about my work with the Vegan Society, actually. And I became aware of the fact that there were lots of stalls selling magic crystals and books yeah. about you finding your inner animal and all these kinds of, well, frankly, nonsense things that had no bearing on in science or any respectable academic conversation. Yet they were kind of there given equal billing <laughs> with the work of activists who were on the ground doing important work with animals and academics who were engaging with difficult questions about animals. So I, I, find, I find I am sympathetic to the worries that some people have about the movement. And I think, again, you and I have talked before about conspiracy theories among vegans. When we talk about naturalism and supernaturalism, of course, people are drawn to this question about religion and atheism. But as you've said there, that's not the only topic where we need good quality epistemology. Another conversation I was you know, really enjoyed was with the researcher and academic Christopher Sebastian, who came on the podcast. And one of the things, things we talked about, and it, you know, apologies for the slightly cheeky term, was this idea of wooganism, where, as you say, you know, there's crystals or sense of spirituality and various other things going on that, you know, can can risk the credibility of the movement. To, to some degree, some of those things are sort of, you know, harmless in a way, right? You know, they can be aesthetically pleasing, they can bring happiness to people, they can, you know, just be another way they think about the world, but it doesn't have a direct impact on, you know, their ethics, doesn't harm others. And you might say, well, what's the challenge? But there are other areas, and you mentioned conspiracy theories is one, you know, very timely example, although they've always been around, where those broken epistemologies can lead people into very difficult and very dark places. Mm. Um, and, and to step back again, the reason why I think it's important for a worldview both to have an ethical commitment and an epistemological commitment is that it seems to me that every world problem, certainly human-caused ones, are either caused by a failure of compassion, you're in the outgroup, you don't count, we're just not going to value, you're outside of the scope of our moral consideration. So that's a failure of compassion, we just don't care in some way. Or there's a failure of epistemology, failure of facts and evidence and reason, people just being wrong about the world. And, and to my mind, neither is sufficient. So people will say to me, well, why does sentientism have to have this naturalistic commitment? Wouldn't it be more sort of open if it just said, you know, let's just stick with the sentiocentric stance? But to draw it back to the animal advocacy space, if we think about the core problem of helping humanity shift to a stance of richer compassion for non-human animals and we think about the practical problems of human exploitation of animals i'd actually argue that more of the problem is an epistemological failure than it is a compassionate failure because we're all you know we share this frustration that most humans already care about non-human animals to some degree so you know it's not necessarily a compassion problem but if someone believes that for example farming is humane or you look at the nice necessary normal sort of rationales that we all hear for the ongoing exploitation of non-human animals, often those things are based on falsities, poor, poor epistemology, and stances that are just not founded by the evidence. So in a way, that is almost more of a problem than just banging on about compassion and getting people to care, because many already do. And I think the, the, the final thing I'd say is that in a, in a really critically important and emotional topic like animal ethics, there's also a temptation for us to follow our own motivated reasoning. 
and for good cause, right? We understand why, what we're fighting for and what we're trying to resist. But there's a danger there too, because again, if we overstate claims, you know, whether it's environmental or health claims or something else, again, you, you undermine the credibility of the stance we do take and um, we don't need to overstate. So I think there's a, a, a broad variety of reasons why I think it's really important to emphasize this epistemological stance of naturalism, as well as insisting on a sentiocentric moral scope. Before I ask the regular questions, I wanted to pick up on something else you mentioned, which was about robots and AI. Yeah. And of course, we could also add in this recent literature, which I'm sure you're aware of, of, quote, plant neurobiology, which is the idea that plants are much more sophisticated than we previously acknowledged. So I guess my question is, do you think the worldview of sentientism could actually be a much broader circle than just humans and animals and include lots of other entities who may be sentient? I do, possibly. And sentientism, again, is is another thing it's really irritating neutral on because it does not insist on a list of species or a list of entities or a list of characteristics or capabilities. It's simply the stance that whatever it is, wherever it is, you know, whatever philosophy of mind you might have about what consciousness and sentience is, whatever it is, it matters in our ethics and that we should take a naturalistic approach to understanding that and working that out. But where that leaves me and others, other sentientists disagree is that my per- personal philosophy of mind and my understanding of the science of my interpretation of it is that our sentience and our consciousness more broadly is really an evolved class of information processing And as such, I think it's very broadly widespread across the animal kingdom. I think it probably had its origins, you know, 600, 650 million years ago in the Precambrian. So it's very broadly spread across the the family tree. And in principle, I don't see why it couldn't go further than that either. So I'm quite open to that. When it comes to the, you know, the plant sentience question, of course, everyone's used to the Twitter troll version of that, which is not asked in good faith. But I think it's really important if we have this naturalistic commitment to have the humility and the openness to consider the possibility so as far as i've seen our understanding of the richness of communication and the nature of behavior of plants and fungi and their interrelations is mind-blowing and complex and rich at this state i haven't seen anyone actively and clearly claim that plants and fungi have the capacity to have a subjective experience and, and to actually be sentient and that's often related to the nature of interaction of information in their own biology. So, you know, personally, that's where I am at the moment. I'm conceptually open-minded, but I don't think there's a significant probability of plants or fungi having significant sentience at this point. But then going to the artificial side, again, in principle, I don't see why that wouldn't be possible if you could replicate the information pressing that's going on in my mind at the moment, or you could evolve it in some other way. I'm not sure why it would be different to run that in a carbon or a silicon substrate, if you like. And many, most sentientists find those topics a little frustrating because they understandably want to focus on the countless quadrillions of very obviously sentient beings in the world, in farms, in human society today. And I'd agree, you know, there's enough of a problem there. But I do like the idea that one, we have a worldview that is future-proofed and open with humility to extending the boundary of our moral scope even further. And I also like the fact that that comes from this focus on sentience. So the reason we care about you know, other humans isn't because they're humans, it's because they're sentient. And the reason we care about sentient animals is not because they're animals, 
because they're sentient. And if we carry that through, of course, we should care about any entity that's sentient, you know, even if it's artificial or, you know, we find out something mind-blowing about a certain variety of plant. So we ask every guest on Knowing Animals five quick questions. Are you ready for your five quick questions? Yeah, <laughs> I will try to make the answers quick too. And I should specify again that because this is an episode of protecting animals, listeners might notice the questions are a little bit different. So, Jamie, can you recall when you first started to think that there's something wrong or problematic about the human-non-human animal relationship? So there were glimmers in my childhood growing up in the countryside because we had Erin Red Setter as a companion animal, but at the same time I went fishing and directly killed other sentient beings. So there were glimmers there, but I didn't carry it through. I think I later on read The Evolution of Cooperation by Robert Axelrod, and I read The Expanding Circle by Peter Singer. But I think the actual trigger was my sister's vegetarianism, because that was the first time I really got forced to think about, hold on, there are practical implications for the way we might think here. And that was an important trigger in shifting that. Can you recall the first thing you did to try and bring about change for animals? So it was small and it was partial, but it probably was my decision to then go vegetarian in my in my 20s. You know, it doesn't constructively do anything for the animals, but at least it removed a tiny slice of harm from what I was contributing to. And then, you know, too many decades later going vegan, but also talking about them openly, because I think people underestimate how the ripples from publicly taking a practical stance might have positive influence, even if we never see it. If you were to name one animal advocate who's had a big impact on you, who would it be? I want to cheat and suggest two. So one is Corey Lee Wren, um, because her work is one of the she's one of the rare academics that's actually focused on this linking of rationality and naturalism and even atheism into the animal ethics world. So I find that work really powerful and distinctive, because I think most people in the animal study sphere, many of them do have a naturalistic worldview, but it's often implicit and it's in the background. and And I, you know, love the way that Corey puts that at the forefront of her work. So her book, A Rational Approach to Animal Rights, is a great example. There's another, obviously, you know, Kim Soch's Animal Liberation and Atheism too, which is a fascinating exploration. So Corey would be one. I also really like the fact that she has a real clarity of ethical stance, but a very evidence-based approach to effective advocacy too, which is a something we might come back to later. And then the second I'd like to cheat on is Milan Engels. And one of his papers in particular, The Mere Considerability of Animals, just rang so many bells for me with this sentientism idea because he f- also focuses on setting moral scope as the most important thing to do and then being open to you know, pluralistic approaches to ethics afterwards. He's almost saying, you know, go where you like, but let's get the scope right. But the other thing he does, which I think is even more important in this idea of mere considerability, is he says, look, you don't need to have an egalitarian stance for all sentient beings. But even if you have a mere basic level of consideration, that has certain very hard-edged implications. And surely that should mean for any minimally sentient being, you wouldn't needlessly harm or kill. So I like the fact that he's taking even this basic minimal expectation of compassion and consideration and driving that very clearly through to a practical stance, really, veganism and animal exploitation and many people soften that you know they'll have very nuanced rich views of degrees of consideration and how those things work but then will somehow find their way back to allowing needless exploitation suffering and death even of non-human animals with quite significant sentience and i'm not sure how that is consistent with any definition of the word 
compassion or moral consideration. What do you think is the most important thing that animal advocates can do for animals? That's such a hard question, but I guess I would suggest focus on the epistemology as well as the ethics. As I hinted at earlier on, I think I would argue that is a bigger problem of epistemology in persuading the world to demonstrate compassion for non-human animals than there is an ethical problem. But I think the focus in advocacy and academia is more on the ethics and almost none on the epistemology. Um, so I come back to that idea, you know, believing farming is humane is an epistemological error, right? It's, it just, it just the, the reality does not tie up with the definitions of those words, but it's beliefs like that that allow compassionate people to do terrible things. So I'd focus on that epistemology side. I think the other thing I would suggest is that let's focus on establishing that platform, this baseline first, and then building on that so that we don't lose sight of that baseline. That then provides us in advocacy of ways of flowing that worldview and that philosophy consistently through every level of interaction we have, whether it's you know UN level in institutional stuff down to personal advocacy what we might do and i think that helps us get the balance between having ethical clarity but using evidence to think about the most effective way of advocating we don't have to sacrifice clarity and purity to be effective and we don't have to sacrifice effectiveness to have moral clarity i think we can actually do both if you had the power to change one thing about the human-non-human animal relationship, what would it be? It would be a revolution towards sentientist social norms. And I guess the reason I focus on social norms is that I think ultimately social norms and psychology are the core problem here. You can see that if you, if you have a common sense conversation with most people on the street and you say, well, does it make sense to use evidence and reason when working out what to believe? They would say, absolutely. And when you say to them, should we have compassion for every being that can suffer? They would say, of course. So in a sense, theoretically, they already agree with both of these deeply radical stances. But what stops them putting that into practice is a complex, rich, and really powerful network of social norms and human psychology that sort of blocks that latent decent epistemology and that latent compassionate ethics from being put into practice. So I think that's the, the core problem. And I one of the things that I find fascinating as I went through this sort of lumpy backwards journey myself was the parallels between moving from maybe a religious supernatural worldview to one that was naturalistic and moving from an anthropocentric, maybe carnist worldview to one that was sentiocentric felt very similar to me because in a sense on both, the answers are really obvious, right? When you're looking at evidence and reason and compassion, they guide you quite clearly towards, I think, a naturalistic start and a sentiocentric start. But the social norms that are indoctrinated into us by parents, friends, society, marketing, institutions are just relentless and powerful and push us in a different direction. So that theoretically easy journey becomes extremely hard in the current social context. So I think that's the, the core issue really is those norms and psychological problems. What are you working on next? What's next for sentientism? So the plan is to persuade 7.9 billion humans to adopt a sentientist worldview. I think there's probably about 100 million who agree with it already and put it into practice, although most of them haven't heard of the word yet, <laughs> but they just, for other reasons, happen to have come into that way of thinking from a variety of different paths. So we have 7.8 billion left to go. But fortunately, given the way social change works, we don't need to persuade everybody. We just need to persuade enough to get to a tipping point. And then I think this wave of social change can happen very quickly.
So let me combine this last question with a question that I think is relevant given what you just said. So how can people find out more about your work? And if people are listening to this thinking, hey, I'm a sentientist, I like the sound of this, what should they do? <laughs> well, I'd love to hear from people because, it, again, this is an open conversation. I'd love to hear what people think of the idea. I'd love to hear challenges to it. I'd love to hear what people think the implications might be. So one thing you can do is if you think you're a sentientist or you have a sentientist worldview, it doesn't have to be an identity. It can just be a way you think, is we do have an I'm a sentientist page on sentientism.info where you can go and sign up. And there's a, a fascinating range of people, including some you know, real luminaries there who've signed up and left a personal message about why. But there's no obligation to do that at all. But if people want to help popularise the idea, it's quite a nice way of people sort of self-identifying and saying, yeah, this this fits. Uh, some really inspiring messages there too. More generally, visit sentientism.info, explore the website, sign up for email updates. I'd love people to come and join our community groups. We're on basically all of them. So if you Google them, you'll find us on Reddit and Discord and Telegram and Signal and wherever else. But our biggest is on Facebook. I know you're there, Josh, and many of your guests have been there too. It's a fascinating mix of people from over 100 different countries. There are academics and activists and writers and the odd celebrity, but mostly just you know really interested lay people like me. And they're open to people who agree with sentientism and people who violently disagree with it too. But as long as you're up for a constructive conversation, they're fascinating so far, quite positive social media experiences. And of course, subscribe to the YouTube and the podcast. You know, I've been lucky to have a, an amazing array of guests, including yourself and many other animal academics. But it, some of the equally fascinating ones are with people outside of the animal academic world. So I've spoken to Peter Watts and Adrian Tchaikovsky, the sci-fi authors. I've spoken to Mark Solms about evolution and people like Franz de Waal, super famous animal behaviorist. And those conversations are interesting because in a way, they're classic examples of brilliant people with big minds who still themselves personally haven't managed to carry the ethics through practically yet. So that can make for sometimes uncomfortable but fascinating conversations. Well, thanks so much, Jamie, for joining us for Knowing Animals. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for Knowing Animals, the podcast where we talk to animal studies scholars about their work. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at knowing underscore animals or on Facebook and you can just find us at knowing animals. I'm on Twitter at Josh L. Milburn and I'm on Instagram at philosopher. Please do tell others about the podcast and review it where you found it. Reviews make it easier for others to find us. I'm Josh Milburn and I do like knowing animals. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?